when I was young and I wanted to invest in real estate, I always thought, well, I need to wait until I have more money or I need to wait until I have more knowledge or experience. But in hindsight, if I knew then what I know now, I could have gotten started even earlier. Welcome to Change Your Mindset Podcast, where it's all about believing in and executing on different and innovative ways to strengthen both your leadership and communication skills to help increase your success, and especially in today's disruptive business environment. One of the most effective ways of building stronger leadership and communication skills is by embracing the principles of improvisation. (laughs) Yes, that's right, improv. Your host, Peter Margaritas, is an improv virtuoso. He's also a certified speaking professional and a CPA, also known as the Accidental Accountant. Each episode of Change Your Mindset is designed to bring you different and innovative ideas, thoughts, and behavioral changes on a variety of differing topics, with the sole purpose of strengthening your critical soft skills. We may call them soft skills, but they are the hardest to master. And when we do, greater success and growth is the result. So jump in and start changing your mindset now. Let's start the show. Do you dream about making money while you sleep? Do you wish you could have retired from the corporate world when you were a ripe old age of 27? Do you know how much money you would have if you started with a penny and double it each day for 30 days? Hmm. Well, my guest today, Rachel Richards, will answer those questions and more in our interview. At the age of 27, Rachel quit her job and retired, living on $15,000 per month in passive income. Rachel and her husband owned 40 residential rental units. In addition, Rachel is a best-selling author of Money, Honey, and Passive Income, Aggressive Retirement. And she has an online course that's titled, Get Your Financial Shit Together. In December, she's launching her mastermind, Women on Fire, and fires an acronym standing for Financial Independence, Retire Early, to help female millennials make massive progress towards achieving their financial independence through passive income. She's a former financial advisor for a financial firm in Louisville, Kentucky. She loves to talk on the topic of money management being fun, entertaining, and simple. This year, she's been on over 75 podcasts and radio shows talking about her true passion. Rachel has helped thousands of millennials work their way out of financial despair. Rachel is a very driven person who's a self-proclaimed finance nerd, and she's been proclaiming this from an early age. She grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, went to college at Center College in Berea, Kentucky, and currently resides in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Now, you can go to our website, moneyhoneyrachel.com, to learn more about her. Before we get to the interview, just a few housekeeping items to take care of. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. This episode is sponsored by Peter A. Margaritas, LLC, also known as The Accidental Accountant. Are you looking for a speaker that can bring powerful content, virtually or in person or on-site, that is memorable and engaging in a way that motivates and inspires your audience? 
Instead of data dumping and numbing with numbers, imagine your people and teams delivering a financial story to your stakeholders. A story that creates engaging and relationship-building business conversations. Would you be interested in learning more about how that is accomplished? How would you feel if the value your facilitator provided your organization far exceeded the dollar amount on their invoice? Peter Margaritas, CPA and Certified Speaking Professional, delivers all of the above and much, much more. All of Peter's programs can be done virtually, in-person and on-site at your location, or at an off-site venue. Send Peter a note at peter at petermargaritas.com and or visit his website at www.petermargaritas.com to learn more about what Peter can bring to your next conference, management retreat, or workshop. Now, let's get to the interview with Rachel Richards. Hey, welcome back, everybody. My guest today is going to make you think and, and make you probably a little jealous. My guest today is Rachel Richards, and you've heard in the intro the, the titles of her book and everything. Got her, got her here live with a referral through my buddy Ken Wentworth, otherwise known as Mr. Buzz. And Rachel, I, I just want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to uh, let me interview you because I listened to Ken's uh, interview with you. And I'm even more fascinated now than I was when I got the introduction. So, one, welcome. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me on. I, I and and just for transparency, she lives. She used to live in the great state of Kentucky in Louisville. So I'm even more intrigued. Two Kentuckians again on my podcast. It can't get any better than this. That's right. The bourbon capital of the world. No better place. And there's only one type of bourbon, Kentucky straight bourbon. That's right. <laughs> Not West Virginia, Tennessee. It's Bourbon comes out of Kentucky for one, one reason, one reason only, that limestone shelf that helps filter that beautiful water that goes into make, to make brown water, as I like to call it. <laughs> so, Rachel, you, you, you retired at the ripe old age of 27 years old. You've, I, I know that you're very, you're very driven. Uh, you're very serious, and in the world of finance, I'm, I'm, my curiosity was piqued by how did you get this interest? I mean, I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky. Like I said, my dad was in the liquor business, so I have an. Well, maybe that's not that good of an example, but, <laughs> <laughs> but how, how did you become such pa- such a passion around the world of, of finance and helping people? There are so many things that contributed to my passion over the years. But one of my earliest memories of money is was in sixth grade. And I found this book called The Motley Fool's Guide for Teens, How to Have More Money Than Your Parents Ever Dreamed Of, something like that. And I was like, well, that sounds cool. And I remember being in this summer camp, water park camp, and all my friends were you know, playing, going on the water slides. I was sitting at the edge of this pool reading this book, totally immersed. That's really when my nerdiness Began. I've been a finance nerd my whole life, proud of it. Um, but there was a reason I was so interested in that book, and it's because I grew up in a really wealthy county. Just to give you some perspective, when some of the kids in my high school turned 16, they got brand new BMW convertibles. Yeah. Um, my family was not operating that way. We were always on a strict budget. We didn't go on family trips, let alone even going out to eat at restaurants. So from a young age, I felt like I didn't fit in. And that's not the way you want to feel in middle school and in high school. I remember reading that book, 
and then years later, you know, thinking to myself in high school, I don't want to end up like everyone struggling with money. I don't want to have to operate on a strict budget for the rest of my life. I don't want to have to borrow money from friends and family to make it to my next paycheck. I wanted to be different. Mm -hmm. And I realized that what I did then would either set me up for wealth or for poverty. So all those thoughts and reading that first book, that kind of kicked off my desire to just learn. I was an avid reader. I started learning everything I possibly could about finance, read all the classics, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Millionaire Next Door, and really started getting into the subject. So you graduate high school with this financial nerdiness (laughs) beginning to be festered and bubbling up in you. And you end up going to school at Center College in Berea. And I know I looked this up and you got a finance degree out of Center College, right? Yes, I majored in financial economics. Okay. So what, 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 I mean, a lot of people have that young feeling and they get the, I was going to be an accountant. Well, I am, but I would went a different way. When I went to, went to UK, accounting was my major. And then I got to intermediate accounting. And I said, I'm dropping this major. <laughs> this, is, this is nuts. I'm not yeah. going to find something easier to do. So you still had that passion. You didn't run up against that wall. I did. So I feel you on the accounting class. I took one <laughs> accounting class and I was like, no. Um, but I actually made, started out majoring in engineering or something like that because I had taken AP physics and AP calculus in high school, did really well and enjoyed it. And I didn't know what, what else to do. Mm-hmm. But then at Center, I took my first economics class and fell in love. And it just made so much sense. It clicked. And then because I was already interested in personal finance, I was like, this is what I'll do. I'll learn financial economics. That's Those are two words you don't really hear together in the, in the same sentence or three. Fell in love with... Economics. economics. <laughs> I always wonder why. Told you, I'm that. a nerd. <laughs> I always wonder why they always have that, like at eight o'clock or seven o'clock in the morning, because they, they they don't want to give away the secret. Apparently, you found the secret. That's so funny. I had an eight a.m. one year, and it was linear algebra, and it was the hardest class I ever took. Wow. <laughs> Partially because I couldn't stay awake. <laughs> so you, you 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 fell in love with economics, and then when you graduated out of uh, Center College, where did you end up? What was your first job? I became a financial advisor at first. And I did that because I actually paid my way through school selling Cutco knives. Have you heard of Cutco Cutlery by any chance? It's American-made knives, super high quality, really great product. Um, And I knew I was going to have to pay for school on my own. So, And the American Eagle job was not going to cut it to to try to pay for school. So I, (laughs) I sold Cutco knives. I paid my way through school. I graduated without debt. And my thinking at the time was, I love to help people with money and I know I'm good at sales. So I'll become a financial advisor. It seems like the perfect fit. And I did love the part where I helped people with money. But when you're starting out as a financial advisor, you're spending the first 5 to 10 years cold calling. I mean, it is strictly a sales job. And although I could be good at it, I didn't love it enough to see myself doing that. So I I quit that job about a year in... And then I became an assistant to a real estate agent. And I took a couple stints in real estate, which at the time I kept thinking I was overqualified for. I took a pay cut. I I thought this was a waste of time. But in hindsight, I really did learn a ton that allowed me to later start investing in real estate on my own. So it's interesting how sometimes you can only connect the dots after the fact. But go ahead. No, go ahead, please. 
And then the the next job I took was as a finance analyst at a manufacturing corporation. That's where I spent the last three years up until I quit my job last year. Okay. Uh, so you, how many properties do you still own? We own six buildings. It's almost 40 units total. Okay. And now you're in Colorado Springs now, but you said you, you spend most of the time in Louisville. Are, are these properties in Louisville? Yeah, they're all in Louisville. We I lived in Louisville for 20 years and I had my real estate license at that time. Super familiar with the area and great place to invest. So it just made sense for us to invest there. Okay. So most, I mean, I think of what you said you have six buildings, 40 units. And I'm thinking of the Monopoly game. You start off with houses before you get into buildings, right? Yeah. And that that is, that's what happened. So my husband had owned a, pre, a primary residence before we met. That was technically our first investment because once we moved in together, we kept that property and rented it out. So we had a single family at first, but then the first one that we intentionally bought as an investment property was a duplex, so a two unit. And then the the next three were all 10 to 12 unit buildings. Okay. So you've got six buildings, 40 units. Uh, Someone's managing it in, in Louisville. And you got to say that with a few marbles in your mouth. Just That's so right. People <laughs> so people don't think we're just mis- mispronouncing the, the name. Um, so that's one bit of passive income you've developed because one of your book, your second book, Passive Income, Aggressive Retirement. Uh, so how many revenue streams of passive income do you have? We have probably five or six at this point, but two of them are the big ones that bring in 90% of our passive income. So at this point, we're bringing in about $15,000 a month total in passive income. When I say that, I mean actual profit. That's what we're actually taking home. So the rental income brings anywhere from eight to 10 grand a month in profit in a normal month. It definitely was impacted by coronavirus and I can expand on that too. Um, Then my book royalties bring in probably about $5,000 a month on average from my two books. I also have online courses that are making maybe about two to three grand a month at this point. And then we are also invested in Fundrise, real estate syndications. We have a small print-on-demand business. So there's other little streams, but the rental income and royalty income are the biggest. Okay. Let's start with your first book, Money Honey. Well, I mean, did you? So you graduate uh, out of and you, you start work your financial, you work for... Uh, uh, financial investment company. Did you ever? Did you ever have the notion that you would be an author? You know, when I was really little, it was my dream. <laughs> it was my dream to become a best-selling novelist. I was like, I'm going to be J.K. Rowling. I wrote short stories and everything. And then when I grew up and I started to learn about finance, I was like, I need to do something more practical. You know, most authors don't make money. I need to right. do something where I can make a lot of money. <laughs> so that's partially why I went into economics and finance which is obviously ironic now because I make more money from my books than I ever did in a corporate career. Yeah. And I remember thinking when I quit my financial advising job, I still love to help people with money. I still want to find a way to do that. And so fast forward a couple of years later, I published Money Honey in 2017. And at that point, my friends and family were still coming to me for financial advice, which was awesome. I love to help them. And I began to wonder, well... Why aren't they reading books on their own like I did or learning on their own? And then I had the aha moment where I realized, oh yeah, personal finance is boring, right? For most people, it's boring. It's intimidating. It's complex. 
So I thought to myself, how can I make this topic fun and sassy and simple? And that's where the idea for Money Honey came from. Really just taking a boring topic and making it entertaining to read. So I published it in 2017. It definitely was way, way, way more successful than I ever would have imagined. Well, congratulations from someone who has two books out there. And I got to have a lot. We're having a meeting after this. They got to pick up their game. <laughs> Those two are not bringing that kind of money. So I got to have a little heart to heart with my book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the underlying theme in Money Honey is? It's really about getting your finances in order. So I talk about the basics. It's uh, budgeting, debt payoff, investing, saving more money. There's a little bit at the end about taxes and insurance. But it's really, you know, look, finance is boring. It's hard to learn about it. Let me make this easy for you. And it just shows you how to get your finances in order. So when should you start investing? As soon as possible, for sure. Most most people think you can't start until you're 18. But you can start earlier if you get a custodial account, like a, mm-hmm. a custodial IRA. You can actually start earlier. But really with investing, it is a time game. The sooner you invest, the better off you will be. I mean, you take an expert investor maybe who waits 10 years to start investing. Mm -hmm. If you invest now, you will be better off than that expert investor guaranteed because you have such a time advantage. So a lot of people worry, you know, I'm going to make the wrong investment. I don't know really how or what to invest in. What you should be worried about is just getting started, getting Mm -hmm. started now. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Second best time is today. Exactly. And, and I, I think, well, obviously, there's, there's an emotional attachment to money. Uh, but I, I remember having this conversation with this partner in this uh, accounting firm. We were in New York City for uh, a meeting at the ASCPA and on the way to the airport, the market had dropped. Uh, and it dropped pretty significantly at the time. And I, I just, I thought, my mom's going to be on the phone talking to me here soon because she always like flips out. And I try to talk to her about risk or whatever. And he says, well, take this approach. The market's on sale. It's a for sale sign. They're, they're Macy's is having a one-day sale. You know, because what goes up will come down and it'll go back up. And you look at that linear line and you go, okay, it, it fell. So now do I have any resources that I can go pick up some cheap, cheaper stocks than they were the day before and keep on investing instead of taking this, oh, well, it's me type of approach? Exactly. The stock market, if you look at a historical stock market of the Dow Jones, for example, mm-hmm. and you look at it, the entire return over the lifespan of that index, it goes up. It always goes up. And then when you start to zoom in on the year or the month or the day, it goes up and down like crazy. It's super volatile, but the overall trend is up. So I always tell people it, it is emotionally difficult, but when the market goes down, that's a short-term thing. It's not going to go down forever. And I, the instinct is, oh, I got to sell. I got to sell my stock because it's going down and I don't want to lose money. But here's the thing. You're not losing money until you actually sell it because it's really only a theoretical loss. If you sell it, that's when you lose money because you're locking in the loss. The best thing to do is hold on to it. And like you said, even buy more when the stock market's on sale so that you can get in before it goes back up. Yeah, I... I... I try not to fall into that trap, uh, but I'm also the treasurer of our local uh, uh, National Speakers Association chapter, and we have a nice investment account. And when it really started going south and we were transferring into a new um, financial advisor, I, who's, who happens to be mine, I, I, 
I made a comment that should we just get out of these positions? And he said the exact same thing he did. When you get out, you, you're locked into it. The market's going to bounce back and we'll recoup that. And five months later, yes, we, we've went back to where we were. And good thing I wasn't, good thing I asked the question instead of just, you know, well, my, my father on Black Monday sold everything. He grew up in the Depression. Mm, oh. so he, he sold everything, paid off the house, paid off the car, paid off the kids, paid off everything. But that gave him peace of mind because he lived through the Depression. Yeah. 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 And that makes sense. If he had gone through that time, for sure. The best thing I tell people to do is don't monitor the stock market. Don't look at it. And I know that's crazy. I truly don't. I don't look at it. And a lot of people are like, well, you're a finance guru. How can you not be monitoring the stock market? And it's because to me, that's not the point. Once I invest, I only invest with the intention of leaving it there for 10 or 15 years. So why would I look at the stock market? It's none of my business. I know my stocks are going to go up in the long run. So it's none of my business what happens in the meantime. Exactly. I love that. I, I love that mentality. And I, I'm going to have to have my mother listen to this over and over and over again. So maybe it'll. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> <Hi>, mom. <laughs> so, um, I was it. It was this book. Uh, which one did you talk about budgeting? Going to money, money, honey. Money, money honey. honey. Yeah. So you know, being a, I am a CPA. Uh, not a very good one. The accidental accountant. <laughs> and there's a story behind that, but I'll, I'll say it for another time. When you say the word budget, it's like you it's like you've given somebody the finger. Oh, it's I know. Cuss like, words like it's like I uh, and I was actually offered a job as manager of budgeting for Victoria's Secret Catalog and I turned it down. Yeah. You're the most hated person in the organization. Right. But those who those who don't plan was it? Those who don't plan fail, those who plan, I keep getting that those who planned. Oh, I don't remember either. Those who plan to, yeah, I can't remember. <laughs> but we know what we're talking about. Exactly. About, yes. And, uh, so how, how do you how do you get people to go? You know, I've always said maybe we change it to instead of budget, change it to planning. Everybody likes to plan for vacation, plan for you know. Do we change the vernacular, or, or how do we get people to recognize it's important to budget? Yeah, I love that. And I think we should. Budgeting is like an offensive word to people. Me too. I mean, it's who likes to budget. But I, if you're talking about planning, then I'm a type A control freak perfectionist. So I love a good plan, right? Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so here's what I tell people though. Dave Ramsey put this really wisely. And so I, I like to refer back to this quote. Mm. He said, a budget is simply telling your money where to go instead of wondering where it went. That's all it is. Isn't that brilliant? That is. That, 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 that's outstanding. Yes. Yeah. And if you want to get your finances in order, it starts with making a plan. I mean, it's the same thing as if you're trying to drive from point A to point B. You have to not only have a GPS or have directions of how to get there, but you need to know where you're starting from too. Right. Or else you don't know where you're going. You're starting, And where you're starting from is what you're currently spending your money on. So you have to understand that first. I always tell people... Just track your expenses for 30 days. If, if you are just starting out, you don't know where to begin, start tracking your expenses for 30 days. It will be so eye-opening to understand where your money is going. So for example, the first month my husband and I did this, and I feel like I shouldn't admit this because I'm supposed to be a finance guru. But the first month we did this, we realized we spent over $900 that month just on groceries. $900. That's not even restaurants. That's groceries for two people. So it was very eye-opening and embarrassing. Hmm. And immediately I was like, well, we got to cut this back. We could, we could cut this back by 50%. 
And it will be very eye-opening though, once you start tracking your expenses to see, wow, look how much I'm spending in this category. I can make some moves here. And you'll want to put a budget into place from there. Absolutely. Yes. I, I did hear you tell that on uh, uh, Mr. Business uh, radio show. Yes. <laughs> I, if she doesn't mention it, I am going to mention it. Because, <laughs> just, just because you said that, I don't want to do my analysis on my groceries. <laughs> I know. Ignorance yeah. is bliss. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to stay blessed. Um, so with budgeting, with and obviously when you budget, I, so here's my philosophy on budgeting. I, I think of I don't like a static budget because things change. Things change even mm. more. So no nobody predicted this pandemic. Right. So you don't build a budget and you leave it on the shelf and check it every now and then. You put it on the shelf, you look at it every month and you look at you look and see what changes happen in the environment and you adjust to it. For sure. Because with the pandemic, a lot of people's gas money was way lower because no one was driving to work. But then the like Hulu and Netflix subscriptions went up because everyone's subscribing to those. So yeah, you should definitely change it. I we're constantly tracking our expenses, we're constantly reviewing our budget. The one thing to watch out for is lifestyle creep. Because as you potentially get a raise, <laughs> make more money, then you're gonna want, then you're gonna justify and say, okay, well, now I can afford to do these things in my life. And you will start to spend more and more money. So that's lifestyle creep. It's so, so dangerous. So what we always try to do is do like a reset every few months. We just did one in September because in August, our spending was just completely out of line. I was like, what have we done with purchasing stuff on Amazon was unbelievable. So I was like, okay, we're going to do a reset. We're going to stick to these super strict budgets. No more online shopping. No more eating out. We we went very strict and we saved an additional two or three thousand dollars because of that. So I think that's a healthy exercise to do once a quarter. All right, well, I think you know to, to the notion of lifestyle creep. I I think we all do that, and especially it might be a coping mechanism during you know a pandemic or during a downtime that and that that buying spending that new you know gives us that. But then again, okay, that's two or three thousand dollars. I could have done something else with. Yeah, it's a lot of money. So let's talk about passive income, which is my friend, which is I think about a lot. And I've got a couple of passive uh, income streams that have basically helped because my live speaking engagements went bye-bye for the most part. The first half of this year, I've moved to a virtual environment. They're starting to come back. But passive income, uh, you said you you have the buildings, you have the books, which are your two... Two big ones. Yeah. Yep. And online courses is the third. And then there's several other small ones. Let's talk online course. Okay. Why? (laughs) (laughs) So I had been thinking about doing an online course for a while. The reason is that I felt I could help female millennials in a in a more hands-on way, in a more in-depth way to really hold them accountable. Because here's the thing. We all know what we should be doing in general, right? We know we should budget and pay off debt and even do things like exercise and eat healthy and and invest in the stock market. So why don't we do it? Mm -hmm. It's because execution is the hardest part. Having the self-discipline is the hardest part. Knowledge is useless without execution. So although anyone can read a book or one of my books and and learn and be inspired are you going to take action? Because that's the only part that matters. And I knew that if I created an online course, I could give people the structure, support, and accountability they need 
to actually implement what they're learning. So that's why I wanted to do it. But here's the funny thing is when I decided, okay, it's time to make this happen. It was in March of this year, March 2020, before things went south. And then I was like, oh, well, this feels weird. Is it is it bad to create a course and charge people for it during this time? Is this going to help people? I kind of had this moral conflict of interest. Right. So I just went to my platform and I said, hey guys, here's what I'm thinking about doing. Is, am I a bad person? Like what? I mean, would this help? Do you guys want this? And everyone was like, please make this course. This would be such a huge help right now. So not only did I I have this idea that I enjoyed, but I did the market research to validate it, to ensure it truly would help people and it would sell. So I launched the course in April of 2020, sold it out, sold the beta version out to 50 signups. And now I run it about two to three times a year. And it's, it's a lot of fun, I have to say. So you said the word execution, and in that in that whole aspect of what you said, I was introduced to this concept, this this analogy, earlier this year, and I, I look at it. So you you buy one of your books, you take the online course. Everybody wants to get to the end quickly. So how do you eat an elephant? <laughs> how do you eat an elephant? Not quickly, but one tiny bite at a time. <laughs> one tiny bite at a time. And I love that analogy. You, you're just, you're not going to be a financial expert just by reading the book. You've got to do the work and yeah. you've got to eat that elephant one bite at a time. Because if you try to eat the whole thing whole, you're going to get sick, bring it back up, never want to get near it again. And I think that's what, a lot, what happens with a lot of people is that instant gratification mm-hmm. versus one bite at a time. Exactly. And I I always warn people, I know passive income and financial freedom sounds sexy and glamorous. I know it does. But passive income is more of an advanced technique. You know, you have to get your finances in order first and do things like paying off high interest debts and having enough money in an emergency fund before you can start creating passive income streams. Absolutely. And oh, by the way, when you build a passive income stream, there's an investment in order to do that. Create that passive. I mean, you write two yes. books. There's an investment in time. There's an investment in money. There's an investment in marketing. The online courses. This, but hopefully that return on investment will exceed that cost tremendously. Exactly. So, oh, um, I wanted to ask: over the years, over the many, 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 many years, what has been your favorite win? My favorite win, a financial win. F. Let's go financial win. Oh gosh. That's that is a good question. I think my favorite win is I launched my book Money Honey thinking who knows if this is even going to sell one copy. And I was so concerned with not losing money mm-hmm. that I invested less than $600 to launch the book, mostly on the editor. Mm-hmm. So it only it took a few hundred dollars to launch the book. And the win is that the ROI on that thing has been, I don't know, thousands of percent points, basically. I mean, I've made tens of thousands of dollars from the book. I think I've made over 50 grand from that book at this point. So I would say that was an exciting win for me. So I have to ask, what's your marketing strategy on that? Well, at first, I didn't do much because I was working full-time. And I, I didn't have a lot of time to devote it into marketing it. But I think because I had such a successful launch, it has sold organically through word of mouth like crazy. I mean, it's a true unicorn. I definitely had a strong launch in that I was involved in several Facebook groups where 
even before I started writing the book, I was adding value by answering finance questions. Mm -hmm. And I would say, hey, former financial advisor here, here's what I think. Just in random Facebook groups. Mm -hmm. But then I kind of became known as this guru or this leader and I became the go-to person. So if somebody asked a finance question, other people would tag me and be like, oh, you need to ask Rachel or, oh, Rachel Richards is your girl. And I got this credibility. So when I finally had the idea of writing the book, I said, hey, here's what I'm thinking. What do you guys think? And there were hundreds of female millennials that were like, oh my gosh, please write this book. You make finance so easy to understand. So without intentionally doing it, I had somewhat formed a launch team of hundreds of female millennials who were ready to not only buy my book, but to review it and help me promote it and share it. And I had such a strong launch that it really transformed into long-term momentum and long-term success. Wow, that's a great story. I I I, I love that story. But it, it listen to which now takes me to another topic. Tell me about women on fire. And fire is an actor. Yeah, I'm glad you asked. This is a new thing I'm doing. Women on fire, and fi- uh, fire stands for financial independence. Retire early. So. It's a it's an acronym. Yeah, I didn't make it up. It's a well-known acronym in the FIRE community of people who, uh, who love to learn about financial independence. But I decided to form a group, Women on Fire. It's a mastermind I'm launching next year for ambitious women who want to create passive income. It's by invite only. I am only going to have six women. I've already filled three of the slots. So I think it's going to be filled pretty soon. But... If that goes well and we all love it and I have a great time, I'm definitely going to turn it into a year-long mastermind that I do every single year. So a small group, define mastermind for the audience. To me, a mastermind is a small, committed group of individuals who are all learning from a leader and who have like specific outcomes of what they want to achieve within a 6 or 12-month period. So my mastermind, we're going to have an in-person retreat as long as we can with what goes on with COVID. We're going to have monthly Zoom calls. They're going to have one-on-one access to me if they ever need one-on-one coaching calls, like unlimited. They can Mm -hmm. call me as much as they want. And the goal is for each member to create at least one new passive income stream. So I'm going to help them take their ideas and get them going and monetize them. Okay. That's that's a good definition of a mastermind. Yeah, everyone does it differently, but that's how I envision mine. Okay, so you're just launching this now. I have I have a feeling that you'll be launching more and more. Uh, it could be a major passive uh, income stream for you. Well, it actually probably will be my only non-passive income stream, <laughs> but an income stream nonetheless. <laughs> right. So there, yeah, as soon as the word came rolling off my tongue, I went, that's not passive. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's, a, it's an income stream exactly. Yeah. So, so I wasn't asked what's next, but uh, I think I've already uncovered that. Yeah, I think I'll focus on that next year. And then the other thing is, my platform has definitely voiced their opinions to me of what kind of content they want to learn more about. And a lot of people are excited about real estate investing. I get a lot of questions, a lot of excitement. So probably if I write another book or create another online course next year, it will be about real estate investing. So we're talking uh, residential type of real estate. Yeah, strictly Um, residential rental properties because that's what I do. No no corporate rental aspects. Mm -mm. No, I'm not. I don't do commercial, so I don't feel qualified to uh, to teach it. Okay, good. good. Well, I, I'm. I mean, I'm with COVID and everything that's happened. I'm real interested about the commercial real estate market moving forward and yeah. the, the type of demand for it. I used to be a commercial 
real estate lender in the Florida marketplace back then, a, a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I asked you about your favorite when. Talked about women on fire. What's your favorite failure? Okay, good. I was hoping you'd ask that. There's so many. There's so many failures, so many, so many mistakes, and I still make them. But my favorite one, which we can laugh about it now for sure. It is funny. At the time, though, it was horrendous. <laughs> we got to the point, Andrew and I, where we were working full-time. I was writing books. We were managing our real estate. And we couldn't, we couldn't do it on our own anymore. So it was time to hire a property manager. The mistake we made is that there had been this couple working for us, a husband and wife. They had already been working for us, doing things like cleaning common areas, doing the lawn care, doing some minor maintenance stuff. They were truly the hardest working people I had ever met and always went above and beyond. So when it came time to hire a property manager, we thought to ourselves, well, and they expressed interest. We thought, well, we can make them employees of our company. Mm -hmm. We could probably save money doing it this way and be more hands-on with the way we're managing them. So that's what we did. And it started out great. And then about six months in, Andrew went to the rentals one Saturday to collect rent from the drop boxes on site and noticed that a lot of rent was missing. And it was not just the typical late tenant, you know, tenant paying late. It was a significant chunk. So of course, we're calling our employees what's going on. They're totally MIA. And we never heard from them again. It turns out they stole $6,000 in rent just that weekend. And we found out that they'd been living in vacant rooms and units in our properties for almost a year. So wow, what a wake-up call. What a violation of trust. I mean, definitely it was awful at the time. And it's even embarrassing to admit it now. But I, I love to share the story because hopefully other investors can learn from my mistake. The moral of the story is we never should have been trying to cut corners here. This is not where you, you're cheap and you try to save money. You need to find a qualified, licensed, bonded, insured property management company. Because if we had done that and one of their employees had stolen rent from us, they would have been liable for the damages, not us. Right. So that's my favorite failure. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's... Um, yeah. It's fun. I, I, it was fun. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Yeah. It's fun now. Please fun now. Yeah. But, the way I look at it, because I know that's awful and it scares other real estate investors yeah. from getting started. But truly, I think if you can just put a positive spin on it, it really helps. And so I just like to tell myself, you know, I paid $6,000 to learn a very important lesson. That was my tuition payment. And now I'm better because of it. And I'll never make the same mistake again. Well, if you take the word fail and turn it into an acronym, you know what it stands for? What? First attempt in learning. Oh my gosh! There you go. I've never heard of that before. I love that. Uh, I, I wish I could, I wish I could take claim to coming up with that acronym, but someone told it to me, and I went, I, I love that. So to, to your point, that was a six thousand dollars tuition payment. Yes. You, you've, but you've learned a lot from that. It was a very expensive one, but you still learned a lot, and you're better for it now than you were. But yes, at the time, it, it just felt just absolutely terrible. I'm writing that down because I love that so much. First attempt in learning. Yes. That's perfect. So as we begin to wrap up, what tips do you have for my audience? A big tip is I think we tell ourselves excuses of why we don't, why we can't start doing something or why we can't get started. And I did this too. When I was young and I wanted to invest in real estate, I always thought, well, I need to wait until I have more money or I need to wait until I have more knowledge or experience. 
But in hindsight, if I knew then what I know now, I could have gotten started even earlier. And don't get me wrong, 24 is not a bad age to get started investing in real estate. But there are so many techniques you can use to get started without having a lot of money or even knowledge. So there's house hacking where you can buy a property and live in it as your primary residence and either fix it up and flip it. Or if it's multifamily, you can rent out the other units and offset your mortgage. Mm -hmm. There's wholesaling, which is where you go find deals on investment properties and basically sell those deals or contracts to other investors who want to pay for it. Because finding the deal is the hardest part. And you can make money just being that sort of middleman and, and bringing those great deals to other investors. So there are definitely ways around having you know, needing to have a 20 to 25% down payment. So I would say look those up, start learning, definitely like know when to pull the trigger in terms of going from knowledge to execution. And the last thing I would say is there's this quote by Zig Ziglar that I love. And he said, you don't have to be great to start, but you have to start to be great. Perfect. Yes. That is, I, I love that quote. Uh, but I, I have to, there's one tip that you gave in, in Ken's interview that he missed it by that much. And it has to do with a penny. Oh, the penny example. Yeah. Oh, I love that one. Okay. So here's what I love to ask people. It's a fun experiment. So if I gave you a penny and I told you to double it every day for a month, how much money do you think you'd end up with at the end of the month? And what's your... I know you cheated, but what's your guess? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. I did. Because I, I, I would have probably said something similar. To yeah. What Ken said, and he said around fifty bucks. But I also use that almost that similar analogy as I talk about technology and and the growth of technology to the game of rice. So when when you said the the amount, which was which is yeah, so a penny doubled a day for thirty days is not fifty dollars. It is five million three hundred sixty eight thousand seven hundred nine dollars. Exponential and the additional interest. Yes, the power of time, the power of compounding can do truly magical things. And that's what illustrates the importance of investing now. It's an urgent thing. Get invested now. If you're young, start now. Just, I I would advise, and I'm I'm working with my son on this, take 100 bucks out of your paycheck if you get paid on a weekly basis and just put it into an account. And when it gets to be, let's say, a thousand, then let's get you an IRA and we'll just keep feeding it. Mm-hmm. You're not gonna miss a hundred bucks. Right. But when so when you're 50, you're going, well, how did this happen? Wow. But it's, it takes that discipline still to make that deposit, to, to invest into that, to, to con- have it continue mm-hmm. to grow way and beyond. And, and I know some folks who are just a little bit younger than me that have not taken that approach, but have become very concerned and have started even at a late age, they five, six, eight years until they retire, but they went, something's better than nothing. Exactly. Exactly. And you're not, you'll, the only regret you'll have later is that you didn't start sooner. That's the only regret you'll have. So get started now and you can avoid that. <laughs> Rachel, I can't thank you enough for, for being on the podcast. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. And having a fellow Kentuckian on it just 
was the cherry on top of this. I wish you all the best. I'm going to check back in with you at some point in time and see how things are going, especially on your Women on Fire. I, I love that concept. I love what you're doing with it. And I have a feeling that after this first uh, mastermind is over, you're going to go, we're going to add this, this, we're going to take off, <laughs> and it's going, to, it's going to take you into higher, higher realms. And um, give my best to your family. Stay safe, stay healthy. And thank uh, you. Is it the weekend yet? Today's Monday. Have a great weekend. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And thank you so much for having me on. This is a lot of fun. Oh, you're welcome. I would like to thank Rachel for her time, her financial knowledge, and her thoughts on making money while you sleep. She is an amazing person that is living out her true passion. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Also, please subscribe and share this podcast with a friend. And I'll conclude with an improv quote that is fitting for this interview. Don't be perfect. Make mistakes. And then you are more interesting to your audience. Be safe. Stay healthy. Like what you just heard? Visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.